Now it's time for the Disney View podcast. Please move across your car to make room for everyone. Our podcast will begin momentarily. Join Dave as he makes his grand circle tour around the Walt Disney World Resort. Dave is a dreamer and an engineer who enjoys the magic and wonder of it all, but understands Disney's place in history and respects the legacy that's been left. Come along and hear Dave's thoughts about Walt Disney World and see it through Dave's eyes. Please stand clear of the podcaster. Por favor, manténganse alejado del David. And now, here's your host. Hey everyone, it's Dave. Welcome to another edition of Dave's Disney View Podcast. On today's podcast, I wanted to talk to you about something that's long gone from Walt Disney World and also from Disneyland, and that's the House of Magic that existed along Main Street in both parks. And this was part magic shop, part something else. And I want to come back to talking about that in a couple of minutes. But first, I wanted to talk about sort of the history of the House of Magic and how we got here, and how they got into this space. So first off, magic. You know, magic is something that kind of lost its way sometime in maybe the 70s or 80s, where it became more about roadside attractions, you know, all these things where you think about magic, which was just tricks. It was just trickery. But there was nothing, no spectacle to it. There was no illusion that went along with it. And somehow it kind of got tangled up in this idea of something sort of unpleasant, you know, just sort of magic tricks. Uh, instead of being about illusions and appearances. But before that, leading up to that point, it was something more. You know, if you look back really far, much further in history, when you talk about Harry Houdini doing things that were illusions, right? He would do these, these great acts where he would make things disappear or he would make himself escape from something. And it was an illusion. It was about the spectacle of it. It was something more. It wasn't just about the trick. And over time, there were others who kind of created on that idea and banked on it as well. And then it sort of fell apart a little bit. And then in more recent times, it's had a renaissance of sorts where you talk about illusions and how people can bring things together to show you something greater. And it becomes more than the trick. It's more an illusion. It's this elaborate space where they're creating something. They're giving you the witty repartee. They're talking about things. They're showing it to you and they're diverting you. And maybe they're even making you laugh, but they're making you think. And you become so distracted that the, it, it's a surprise what happens. They take you down a path and then something else happens. You know, and some of the people that are out there today, you know, the, the David Copperfields of the world a few years ago, and um, you have, uh, you know, the Chris Angels and the, uh, and the um, what's his name? Uh, um, uh, I, I can't think of his name now. Uh, David, David Blaine, I believe his name is. Um, you know, they have these different guys that do different illusions, and they're, they're, Illusions are really good and they're, you know, sometimes it's close up and near you and sometimes it's far away, but it's always interesting because they, you don't know where they're going exactly until they get there. So they've really taken it to a new level and it's kind of, kind of neat the way they've um, done that. So going back in history, Walt Disney himself, you could argue was an illusionist. The way he created Disneyland, the way he thought about the park and the structure of the park and how you get immersed in something, that's an illusion in a way. Uh, the fact that you have this, what we call the Disney bubble, that's sort of an illusion. It's more than just talking about uh, a trick. It's, it's something that's, that really brings something bigger to life. And you could make the case that through his animated films, the fact that he had two-dimensional space where you had drawings, and he put the multiplane camera on it and created three-dimensional three sort of images within there and brought these characters to life in a way 
really is kind of that illusion thing, right? He really was an illusionist in a way where he was creating something that was bigger and larger and looked more interesting than just the basic idea of tricks. You know, it's simple tricks, but it's how you present them that really makes it interesting. And even down to his movies and the way he created things, his, the way he brought the web designers together and they started to bring things to life that otherwise, you know, might've been just a roadside stand. You might've had, instead of having a theme park with attractions, you might have just had some sort of um, park, right? Just just some sort of uh, merry-go-rounds in a park. And you know, that's that's not what he wanted. So he was creating this grander illusion. So in a way, he was an illusionist, right? You could kind of make that case. Well, anyway, as he was thinking up this idea for Disneyland, he had this idea for creating something that would like allow for magic tricks to be sold, but not just magic tricks, illusions, right? So he had this idea for um, for a shop that he wanted to put in there, but he wasn't in the business of creating magic tricks or selling them. He didn't have anybody on staff who could really do that. So he sought somebody from the outside. Now, Walt Disney was very big in the community and he knew a lot of people. Now, there was an interesting guy in Southern California by the name of Merv Taylor. Merv Taylor was a performance artist. He taught people how to do um, various uh, performances. He was a welder, he was a sculptor. He did all these different things. You know, one of these men of many multi-talents who really uh, has some interesting things he does in his life. So one day, there's a magician who's coming through town, an illusionist who's coming through town, and he comes in and he has a prop that's broken. And so he, uh, he winds up getting in touch with Merv Taylor and Merv says, hey, I can fix that for you. And he works on fixing it and makes it even better. And Merv gets this idea, this sort of bug, that he can create props for these illusions that are even better than what's out there today. And he created one of the greatest uh, prop companies for illusions, so basically a magic company in a way, that created magic tricks and props and things like that that were made of materials that no one had used to that point, steel, plexiglass, well-made, hand-manufactured things that were he could sell and really make something interesting. So for a period of time from when he started the business sometime in the 1950s till about probably the 1980s, if you saw anyone on stage or anyone doing a trick, probably the, um, the prop was made by Merv Taylor. That's just the way it worked. He was that big in, in the industry. And it was really pretty neat, the things he was making. So it was kind of neat that, uh, that he had this idea and uh, he created it. And uh, so he was, he was doing these things and he became sort of famous in Southern California. So Walt Disney knew about him too. And when Walt was thinking about opening a magic shop, he went right to Merv Taylor and he goes, Merv, I'd like to, you to open a shop there. So Merv thought about it a little bit and he got together with a business partner and they opened a shop over in Fantasyland of Disneyland called Merlin's Magic Shop. And the idea was to create some sort of um, magic tricks that they could sell. These were, a lot of things were things that he made, that he manufactured, that he was selling. And so he had this idea for how to do that. Now, the thing about selling magic tricks is it's kind of interesting. Yeah, it's not just about putting the tricks out there and going, hey, you wanna buy these. You have to actually demonstrate them in some way and you have to put together the illusion to get people to wanna to buy them. So you really have to kind of figure it out. Now, in my own history, I remember when I was in, I was probably a little younger than junior high school, not by much, but right around there somewhere, 10, 11 years old maybe. And my dad and I went out to Miami Beach and um, went into this um, shop that was run. It was a magic shop that was run by a um, eh, moderately famous magician. And um, he was in there and he was doing his, his tricks and his patter and he was doing all these things. And it was exactly that. It was a small little shop, you know, that basically was, uh, you know, just a, you know, the size of a size of a room, like a, a bedroom or something it felt like. And he had like a counter where he had all these tricks up there. He had stuff on the wall behind him. And he would show you, he would show you an illusion. 
you would talk to him about something, he'd wind up, hey, look at this kid, and he'd show you the illusion. He'd take you through it, and he'd show you how it was done. Um, not that he would tell you how the trick was done, but he would show you the illusion and take you through to the end of it. And it was really cool. And you'd ask him, hey, how was that done? He goes, I'm not going to tell you that until you buy the trick. Because the thing about the illusion is, once I've told you how the trick is done, you know how it's done, and you're going you're gonna to look at me and go, why did I spend four bucks on this? You know, I want to make a little money. I got to make my living too. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have you buy it. I'll tell you how it's done. And then I'm going to show you how to build patter around it to make it interesting. And that way you build a, a sort of a, a more of a spectacle of something where you're building something kind of interesting. And it becomes, you know, you can build your own tricks around it. And it was kind of interesting to hear his perspective because here was a guy who had performed on stage before and he was telling you, this is the way the, the magic world works. The tricks are all very simple. And once you bought one of his tricks and you realized how simple it was, you'd kind of hit your forehead and go, what? It's that simple? It was exactly that. And that's the way all magic tricks are. They're all very simple. Now, how they do the, uh, the illusion, how they set up the props, how they take people around, how they give you some other, uh, some other things to uh, deceive you in some way, how they set up their patter, how they do the lighting, all of these things, how they take you down a path where you think you know where they're going and then they go somewhere else and make a right turn and they go somewhere else. Those are all parts of it that make it much more compelling because that's what makes the illusions really sell. And that's what um, Paul Diamond was the, was the magician's name. That's what he was trying to tell us. You know, he was trying to explain to us, this is the way the, the magic works. And so that kind of stuck with me. And so when uh, Merv Taylor and his partner opened up this store at Disneyland, they had that same idea. They would sit there and, and show the tricks and get people engaged and sell magic tricks. They were making money on it. They had a contract with Disney. I guess they paid lease space or whatever. And they, um, they, made, they, they sold tricks that way. Now, it was a kind of an interesting shop. I guess Merv was in there periodically. He wasn't there all the time because he had other things he was doing as well. But he hired a bunch of people to come in there and work for him who were really kind of interesting. One of the people that came in there and worked for him was Steve Martin, the comedian Steve Martin, or now the actor. And Steve Martin came in and he was a great salesman. He was really good at selling the entirety of the product line there. And he could demonstrate them and he could um, make jokes with guests and he could have some fun. And it was really kind of an interesting experience. So Martin worked there for a couple of years, as I understand it, and uh, really kind of was able to, to build his pattern. And ultimately he came up with this idea for his own show, his own stand-up comedy show that included some very light magic. Now, the other thing that the magic shop had in it was some other um, gag props, right? So there was this, these gags that they had in there. And he would sell the gag props and Steve Martin saw the arrow through the head and he thought it was the stupidest thing he's, he'd ever seen, but he used that as a primary prop in his show because he, it was so stupid and so funny that he thought it was great. So little nugget of history there. So Steve Martin was actually involved with the, uh, the magic shop along the way. So as uh, Disneyland expanded and they opened the Disneyland Resort, um, Taylor and his partner actually opened another store over at the Disneyland Hotel. And that one became ultimately successful too because they would put on stage shows there at the Disneyland Hotel several nights a week or whatever and they would do different things and they would have you know, celebrity guests come in and they would do these, these magic shows, these illusionary shows. And it was really pretty neat and it got, it increased sales, it brought people in, it was a win all the way around. Later, Disney decided that he wanted to move the um, magic shop from Fantasyland over to Main Street. And so they moved the shop down to Main Street and it was actually just as successful. And that was the House of Magic that was on Main Street. That was, you know, maybe 1970 or so. But by this point, I believe Merv Taylor had either had retired or maybe he had passed away. I, I'm not sure about the dates exactly, but he had 
they had moved it over to Main Street and they had this idea for having it go over there. And they continued on the, the fine tradition. Now, when Disney World was being planned up to be opened, there was this opportunity to kind of recreate a lot of the things that you saw along Main Street at Disneyland. Why reinvent that content when you can just sort of duplicate it? So they had the same candy shops, the same hat shops, same film shops, the tobacconist. I know tobacconist seems so weird right now. Uh, they had a card shop, they had a Penny Arcade, and they had the House of Magic. So they opened the House of Magic right along Main Street. Um, it was about two-thirds of the way up the street. If you were coming in from the main entrance heading toward the castle, it was about two-thirds of the way up on your left. And they built the House of Magic there, and you could go in behind it and go into the arcade. So it was pretty neat. You had this, this interesting place that was created, and that was what it was. It was basically based on what they had over at Disneyland. Now, I can't tell you, I couldn't find any historical uh, notes to say if um, Merv Taylor or his company had anything to do with this one or if this was just sort of their own addition and Disney just sort of borrowed the ideas that were shown at the, at the Disneyland park or if it was something that was connected in some way. I'm not positive about that. But in any event, it was very similar in the way that they set it up. Now, this shop and the one in Disneyland had three parts to it. It was a small shop, no question about it, but it was a small shop that had um, three parts. The first part was um, gag gifts. So you had the, you know, the gaggy things. You had the rubber chickens. You had the dog leashes that had no dog in it. You had um, the arrow through the head, things like that. Then you had the um, horror masks. Now the masks were something that was, they were, a lot of them, they had very expensive masks that they would sell there. They would be these, these rubber masks that you would put on. And they would sell some very expensive ones that were very intricate and well-designed. And they'd go all the way down to the very low-end ones that were just cheap vinyl masks that you would find for Halloween uh, at your you know, local store. And they would sell those as well. And that was something that was really, people loved that. And I actually liked going in and looking at those too. It was always kind of neat to see all these different masks because they were so intricately designed. Um, and they were really, really pretty neat. And they were all designed by one company whose name escapes me at the moment. I'll put it in my show notes page when I find it. But um, they were all made by this one company and they would sell all these different, uh, different masks. And they were really, really good. I mean, some of them were just spectacular. Way out of my price range. Uh, I think my brother wound up buying one at some point that was in the middle price range somewhere. You know, so it was like $30 maybe. And it was really, really nice. And it's, it held up really well over time. I think 20 or so years later, we still had it. But it was really pretty neat that they had this, this there. And then the third part of the shop was the magic shop. So they had the magic tricks that they would show. Now, the cool part was... They always had one or two people working behind the counter who would show you an illusion, like the guy I saw in Miami Beach. They would be there showing you the illusion, talking about it, and, and then kind of hinting at how it was done, but until you purchased it, they wouldn't show you how it was done. So it was kind of neat. And they, you know, they'd take you to the side and they'd show you how it was done and they'd, you know, they'd talk to you about it if you purchased it. But it was really, really cool. Now, I mentioned I have a kind of a personal connection here. So the thing about it was when I went to see that magician down in Miami Beach, I became hooked on magic. I found it fascinating. And I started buying tricks and doing different things and finding out ways to do illusions. But the tricks themselves, they were so simple, they needed more. They needed something else. And I always tried to create something that was a little bit bigger and more compelling than just that simple trick. You know, you build, a, build something around it. And I got to be pretty good at magic. I wouldn't say I was great. Um, you know, I used to go to magic conventions and do different things. A little geeky, I know, but... I got to know a lot of the professional magicians and, you know, around. Some of them are, you know, internationally known and whatever. And 
they, you know, they were always interesting because you learn so much from them about how to present your act and how to talk about things and how to present them. And it was kind of a neat thing to be able to think about that in a different way. It was not just about the trick anymore. It's about the solution. How do you present something? And I remember meeting some really interesting people who gave some really interesting ideas on how to create something that was unique and how to stand out uh, among all these other magic tricks. And it was just, it was really fascinating to me how that all worked that you had this way of kind of getting it all together. And you know, you're meeting, every, you're meeting other people who do that. And I became very fascinated. I used to go into the magic shop every time, House of Magic, every time I was in the Magic Kingdom because I wanted to see what they had new. I would go see a couple of the local retailers around in South Florida because I would, you know, would see what they had. And I would always be learning something new and trying some new trick and doing some illusion and trying to create a better show for myself. I didn't do many shows, but I did, I did a lot of magic. And occasionally I do a show and get paid. So, you know, hey, lucky me. But it wasn't anything great. It was just, you know, just different things I do around. And it was, it was fun. And I enjoyed it so much and I really got into it. And I, it was like one of those, one of those things in life that you just, it kind of takes on a life of its own. And it was a lot of fun and I enjoyed it a lot for very many years. And then at some point it, you know, I just sort of, I don't know if I tired of it or I just reached a point where it was, you know, I was saturated with the number of things I could do without going bigger, right? Without creating props and really doing something that was bigger and grander than what I was doing. I could keep doing these cheapy things. I watched, I remember going to one magic convention and there was an older guy there and he was doing, uh, he was doing a trick and his sleight of hand was too slow and it was almost comical how slow it was because he just didn't have, he didn't have the maneuvers anymore. He just, you know, he'd lost his touch. And I thought, I don't ever want that to be me. So I'm going to get out of the game while I'm still enjoying it. And I'll still watch magic and I'll still enjoy it and I'll still learn these tricks, but I'm not going to do them and perform them anymore. It just sort of worked out that way for me. And that was, you know, it was interesting because I, yeah, I remember when I went to work at the, at the Emporium, you know, a few doors down from where the, uh, uh, the House of Magic was, I remember thinking to myself, I wonder if I could transfer over to the House of Magic and, and do something over there. This was while I was still doing magic and I was like, wow, it'd be kind of cool to kind of get into that and have some fun with it. And it, it never happened, but I used to go in there once in a while on my breaks and, you know, after work and whatever, and not on my breaks because you couldn't really go in there as a, you know, dressed in your costume, but, you know, uh, after work and, you know, different times and I'd go in and look at stuff they were doing and it was always kind of fun. It was still compelling. Um, but it was kind of interesting. You know, I kind of look at it and I go, wow, that was kind of neat. And then finally... In 1995, Disney decided they wanted to expand the Emporium and the athletic company that was there, and they wanted to create one big store that sold only merchandise and didn't want to do magic tricks anymore, and they got out of that business in 1995. I think it was May of 1995 that they closed, their, closed the door for the last time, and they took down the signage, and it didn't say House of Magic up there anymore, and it was kind of sad in a way. It was just gone. Then they created a magic store that was over at um, Pleasure Island, I guess on the west side of Pleasure Island, for a period of time, and that one... You know, not as successful, maybe not as good. I went in there once or twice and I was like, meh, it's okay. Nothing spectacular. But uh, it was still nice to have that remembrance of what we had. And so that was kind of neat. And then ultimately they um, put the signage back up. In the last couple of years, they put the signage back up that says House of Magic. Even though they don't have any magic in there anymore, it says House of Magic on there. And so I think that's kind of a nice connection to Disney's own past. And it's just kind of interesting because it's, you know, it has that personal connection. I really enjoyed magic for a period of time while I was doing it. And it was a lot of fun to, uh, to go in that store and watch these guys doing the, doing the illusions, you know, showing you the pattern, how to put it together, and then giving you some ideas on how you could make it better, own it yourself. And 
that's what really made it compelling. Like I said, I went to a number of different magic stores, but for some reason, that store in the Magic Kingdom, maybe because it was the other stuff they sold too, besides just magic tricks, it was that's what that's what really made it compelling for me. That's what made it fun was the fact that it was more than just the magic tricks. It was like other stuff, and it was fun to go in there. And I used to drag my parents in there, like a lot of people. I drag my parents in there every time we go, and uh, we were there several times a year. So I'd go in every time, go stand in there for a while, and you know look at a couple of tricks and pick out a couple of things. And I could spend a couple of bucks. My parents would give me a few few dollars to spend. And uh, you know, I'd buy a couple of things and take them home with me and learn how to do them and do them well and you know, do, you know, get get to learn how this works. And I guess that's you know, that's that's where it all started for me. So just kind of interesting, kind of a trip down memory lane from a personal perspective and thinking about the entirety of Walt Disney World and how it's evolved over time. So that's my story about the House of Magic. One little spark of inspiration is at the heart <laughs> of all creation right at the start of everything that's new one little spark lights up for you and for my one little spark segment today i thought i'd talk about the super bowl it's that time of year when someone typically says i'm going to disney world and it got me to thinking about the nfl and its relationship uh, with um, the players and sort of this uh, the race relations that go on between the two. So the owners tend to be typically older white men and the athletes tend to predominantly be younger black men. There are a lot of white men who play as well. But anyway, the, uh, the point is that you have a lot of different people in there. And in the 50s and 60s, race relations were a little different in the NFL. There was a lot of name calling and a lot of um, racial barriers and things that went on. But over time, it's moved a lot. The needle has moved tremendously on the NFL and the way it's done things. Um, it's handled itself, acquitted itself very nicely. And overall, I would say that things are, are much better than they were. And I think the union probably helped make that happen too because they force issues to happen and come to the surface so they don't become bigger issues. Plus, of course, the pay scale, <laughs> making sure that the athletes are well compensated, doesn't hurt. So in the social justice space, a few years ago, you had Colin Kaepernick out there. And Colin was an interesting guy. He had a, uh, a lot to say about social justice. Um, and it became complicated for him because he became sort of a lightning rod. He said one thing and sort of did another in, in his personal life. And he didn't really follow through on a lot of the things that he was talking about. He was expecting others to do it, which is fine. That's his business. But then he did some silly things like wearing the pig socks and things like that. And when it came time for elections, it turns out he didn't even vote. So you kind of have to weigh what he did you know, how he carried himself and how he comported himself. And he became a pariah in the NFL. And the NFL wound up basically blackballing him, even though he won a couple of lawsuits, he's still not playing. And he may be better than some of the quarterbacks that are out there. But that's what happens sometimes. But then you flip to the other side. What he did was he opened the door up for other players to stand up and get noticed. And the guy I'll bring to, to the forefront is Patrick Mahomes, the quarterback of the Kansas City Chiefs. He's an interesting guy. Um, he's, uh, he's got a lot to say about a lot, of, uh, a lot of issues, and he's very big in the social justice space. And let me explain. Uh, the other day he was giving uh, a, a, one of these talks before the Super Bowl, and he said, when you're given a platform like I've been given, you want to try and use it and make the world a better place. I truly mean that when I say that. I have a good understanding of people from all different backgrounds growing up in the locker rooms, growing up all around different types of people. I have a pretty good job of trying to bring people together, pretty good understanding, so I'm going to try and just do that. As I continue to learn about different people and different things in life, I'll try to use my voice to continue to try to bring people together and make the world a better place. 
And I found that really interesting. Now, when George Floyd was murdered um, back last year sometime, he had this to say. As a kid who was born with a black dad and a white mom, I've been blessed to be accepted for who I am my entire life, but that isn't the case for everyone. The senseless murders that we have witnessed are wrong and cannot continue in this country. And then he got together with the NFL to figure out how to get the NFL to make a statement about it. And he was in a group of players where they went together and they said, hey, the NFL should do more. And the NFL came out with a statement about the killing of players and... um, they, uh, they talked about some things, and it made it a little bit... It gave the NFL a little voice as well. And I found that really interesting. And then Mahomes, when it came time for the election this time around, out of his own pocket, his and his foundation's pocket, he decided to ask the Kansas City Chiefs in Arrowhead Stadium if they'd be willing to have the, uh, that as a polling place, the uh, Arrowhead Stadium as a polling place. And they agreed. And he paid out of his own pocket to use it that day. Um, and the foundation. So they used the money to actually open it up. And he said, I thought it was very important not only to get as many people out to vote as possible, but also to use it as a place, as Arrowhead, where we have a lot of fun, show a lot of love and unity where people are coming together, and use that as a place where we can come together and vote and use our voice. I thought Arrowhead was the perfect place for it, and the Chiefs were all on board. And I just thought, this guy really, he understands his his power, and he's, he's... he gets it. He's like, he's like, you could almost say he's like Colin Kaepernick 2.0. They, they, you know, they figured out what was wrong with it. They debugged it and they made a better version. Um, and he talks about how he's got relationships with other athletes and how they all kind of have these common goals and they talk to each other a little bit, bouncing ideas around, but he's his own person. It's just, you know, he wants to use his platform for good. Now, when he signed his mega contract for $503 million, he said at the time, obviously, in the time that we are in right now, there's so much opportunity to go out there and try and help the world be- become the best place they can possibly be. I feel like having the security and this trust in the organization and obviously the financial ha- help, I'll be able to do that not only in the Kansas City community where I hope to have impact as much as I can, as quickly as I can, but hopefully around the world. And then goes on to say, to have this trust in the organization to be behind me, not only on, but off the field as well, I feel like I'll be able to make a huge impact in this world in many ways, and I'm just excited for the next step and to continue doing whatever I can to help achieve that. Yes, that's exactly it. That's the point of what I'm trying to say, too. It's this, we need to come together and understand other people and not just, you know, kind of brush them aside and go, okay, they're different. It doesn't matter where you come from you know, where your ethnicity comes from, where your originally family lineage comes from, whether it comes from Africa, whether it comes from somewhere uh, in Europe, whether it comes from Asia, um, whether it comes from uh, anywhere. We're all people. We put our pants on one leg at a time and we all do the same things, want the same things in life. And to deride someone just because they look different isn't really fair. It's, you know, it's not the right way we should be thinking about things. I try to take a moment and listen to what people say and try to understand what they're saying and why they're saying it and try to listen to the words and you know think about is this hurtful to someone maybe to me maybe to someone else i have a broad ethnic background in, in myself and in my family so i try to listen to you know people and what they say i happen to look white so people don't ever think of me as anything other than white so when I listen to people, like I listen to what they're saying and I think, wow, maybe it doesn't offend me personally, but maybe it would offend someone else in my family or someone else, you know, around me. And I try to just think about that. And 
you know, I will softly, I'm not forceful about these things, I will softly correct someone if I think that they've said something that is in some way insensitive. And it's not about offense or anything like that. This is about just under, make, taking the time to understand people. You make a joke about someone because of their ethnicity or something, and you go, well, why? You know, that, that doesn't make sense. Or because of their sexual orientation or because of the way they look. There's, there's no purpose in that. You know, you're just making fun of people for making fun of people. Do it to their face if you want. I mean, whatever. You know, if you, if that, that's always what I say. If you wouldn't do it to their face, why would you do it behind their back? And, yeah, it's a weird, weird sort of thing. But anyway, it just got me to thinking about the NFL, Patrick Mahomes, and how we can make the world a better place. He's chosen to do it his way, use his platform, his, his, his social status, his, um, his abilities, his, um, the way he is to be something bigger. And he's got a mega personality. The guy is really interesting. So he's, you know, he's out there and he's doing really amazing things on and off the field. We can all embody that to some degree. Now, one thing I'll caution you about, um, you know, you want to be careful who you pick as your role models. He seems like a great guy. And I'm saying, you know, you should think about what he's saying and maybe join in some of his causes. But don't put him on a pedestal. Um, as Charles Barkley famously said, the basketball player, um, I don't want to be anyone's role model. I'm a complicated person and I've got a lot of faults. And you got to remember that, right? And it may turn out that Patrick Mahomes has some faults too. But remember what he's doing that's good. And keep that in mind as you think about what he's doing. Because you, can, you realize that there's an opportunity for us all to kind of emulate that in some way. Well, there you go. That is my one little spark. I just hope I've encouraged you to think a little bit more and be compassionate toward others. And that is my podcast for this week. I hope you've enjoyed it. And remember, if we can dream it, we can certainly do it. Bye now. Thank you for tuning in to the Disney View podcast. We hope you had a pleasant stay and arrive home safely. Please remain seated until your ride vehicle stops completely. Then, gather your personal belongings and step out onto the moving platform. And yes, I know it went by so quickly, but don't worry. One of the nice things about traveling on this podcast is that the journey is just beginning. Show notes are available on DisneyWorldPodcast.net. While there, please check out some of our affiliates. You'll also find links to Dave's iPhone and iPad apps. There's an app for pin trading, one for finding hidden Mickeys, and an app for finding and tracking pressed pennies around the Walt Disney World Resort. And you never know just what Dave is working on next. If you have questions, feel free to drop Dave an email at davesdisneyview at gmail.com. Original music you're hearing in this podcast is Oslo Doom by Gilberto Gil. Of course, this is a fan podcast and in no way affiliated with the Walt Disney Company. 